We're doing a new series on Colossians, but that starts in two weeks' time. And I thought, what better book to do than Philemon, um, which starts right now, because Paul wrote Philemon at the same time he wrote Colossians. So while he was in prison, he had two letters to pen, one to get a dead man who is now a live man who, if he returns home, will become a dead man alive again, and then also the book to the Colossians. Now, uh, typically, I am a pragmatic theologian. I don't like giving dense and verbose sermons. I like to think of the way it practically applies to our life. And so you always find that typically when I preach, I err on the side of practical simplicity because I'm trying to think of ways you know, for instance, in First John, to live a life of love. What does that look like? How does that practice? But today, I'm actually going to err on the side of academia because this is a very, very, very short book um, and there's a lot that's going on in here. And we can think that maybe this is about a way of a servant who has stolen and run away and therefore deserves death, being welcomed back into a home. But it's not. I mean, that's really important, is the goal here is to see a dead man be a live man, both spiritually and physically. But this is a conversation about persuasion. And, fascinatingly enough, it ties a lot in with what Jeanette was talking about during communion, is how is it is a dead man, a person who has been divorced from his family, become welcomed back in? Um, And the answer is really simple. It's scandalous grace. So I'm going to read Philemon, all of it. And yes, I know there's arguments about whether it's Philemon or Philemon, but the Greek letter that used at the start is phi, so I'm going to go with Philemon. So um, we can argue about that afterwards and I can pull out the Greek. Um, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to all the church that meets in your home, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you might be active in sharing your faith so that you will have full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, Paul, as an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become uh, useful both to you and to me. I am sending him who is in my very heart Back to you. I would have liked to have keep him, kept him with me so I could... Uh, <clears throat> sorry, I'm going to start that again. 
I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, a dear brother. For he is a dear, because he is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my very own hands. I will pay you back. Not to mention, you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in your answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, as do Mark, Aristarch, I can't even say it, Demas, Luke, and my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. Um, that's, the whole, that's the whole book. And the thing is, is that when we work through this, there's a lot going on. Um, this is actually called Asiatic rhetoric, if you're wondering. Um, rhetoric is the style of language that you are using to address someone in a culture. Right, And that's really important is because if we don't understand the context of what something is, then we could use it to mean whatever we want it to mean. Okay? Like when you watch a movie, right, genre is really, really important, isn't it? You, d you don't watch Shrek and assume that you're watching a documentary about ogres. You know because of the genre... It is an animation comedy that therefore there are some things that are implied. Do we not? It's the same with scripture. And so Paul is adopting a style here that is designed to emotively call to a brother in Christ to persuade them to do something. And because he is so good at it, he adopts a completely different style of rhetoric, an Asiatic style of rhetoric, to engage the person to which he's writing to. He knows that Philemon is a Greek, so he's writing to him in a genre and a style that it is going to appeal to him. And the, the idea is, is to establish himself as a brother in Christ, but also acknowledge that he is a prisoner in Christ. Why? Because Onesimus is a prisoner, sorry, a slave who is now a free man because of Christ who is going to return to be a slave. This is not a conversation about emancipation. Paul is not contending to make Onesimus free when he gets back, but to restore him to a previous relationship with Philemon. Okay. And we see that right from the get-go. Paul doesn't address himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, 
What does he say? He says that I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Allow me to adopt a position of a lowly disadvantaged state. Why? Because I'm about to issue a democratic plea for the reinstatement, not death, of Onesimus. Onesimus has not done well by Philemon. More than likely, Onesimus has stolen from Philemon. And more than likely, Onesimus has, by being absent from Philemon, ripped him off of the work that he owes him. Okay, Philemon has a right to kill Onesimus. That is Roman law. A servant that has uh, kind of absconded with your possessions and become... uh, uh, removed from you know your service you're allowed to kill him paul knows this but paul also knows that onesimus is no longer dead but alive in christ and so this is the appeal and paul uses two particular words here to address philemon our dear friend dearly beloved and fellow worker the words here are agapeto Right? And synergos. They're the two terms that he's using. And the reason he's using these words is because he wants to communicate agapeto, dearly beloved. Philemon, we have a deep relationship. We have a love between us that is bonded into eternity. Okay? Not only that, synergos. You and I are co-workers together for the glory of God. Use those two words together. Why? Because the style of rhetoric we're about to use is bold. I'm preparing a way that I can play a big game with you. Um, The best way I can liken this is that um, uh, to certain people... Uh, you can talk certain ways. Uh, when, you, when you meet the king or the queen, you must adopt a very formal, polite style of communication or rhetoric, right? There's bows, there's formalities. But when you talk to a friend, you can be a bit more laid back. And when you talk to a really, 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 really good friend, you can be yourself. Not only that, there's an opportunity for you to be bold. If we don't have good rapport and I call you out on something, you take offense to it, right? You don't have permission to do that. You don't have permission to... We we don't have that kind of relationship, but... What Paul is establishing, Agapeto and Synergis, is you are a dearly beloved. Not only that, we are intertwined in this mission that we are doing together. He is appealing to the fact that we are, there is a deep connection which is going to allow him permission to be bold. Okay? Not only that, he then says, hey, Epaphras is with me, Timothy. All these people are people that Philemon knows. 
They're all in this together, working. Our goal here is to establish a deep rapport for the recipient. Okay, and then in verses 4 to 7, I will always thank God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love for all the saints. What is he doing? Well, this is called an exordia. It's an exhortation. Let me just celebrate you, brother. Let me celebrate all the good things you're doing. Why would you have an exordia like this? Well, you have an exordia like this because subtly you're going to remind him of all the things that he's doing well before you slap him in the face with a giant request. Oh, brother, I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints. Next verse. Verse 6, I pray for you that you might be active in sharing your faith, which you already do, and that you might have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ Jesus. Here's the ethos for the exordia, reminding you of the unbelievable love and faith that you are already demonstrating in Christ Jesus and unto all the saints all of them without fail it doesn't matter who you see or what you know paul is buttering him up here on purpose the ethos here is to remind him of all the work the service the faithfulness that you have done and so that's why this exordia is so passionate hey man you're awesome Every single day you model Jesus Christ. Why? And this is where we know that we get to kind of an Asiatic style of rhetoric is that Paul says, hey, listen, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do something that you ought to do, I'm not going to do that. But rather I'm going to appeal to you. Still haven't mentioned the name of the person that we want to talk about right yet. See, Paul is trying to play um, what is known as pathos. I'm appealing to your emotion. Parasia epitacin. Parasia epitacin. I have a bold command that I could issue in Christ Jesus. But I'm not going to do it yet. You see, this is where uh, this kind of style of communication becomes really important is because Asiatic rhetoric is designed to say between two Greek friends, you can be very bold in making a request because you have an established rapport with a person. And in doing that, you might speak your mind openly and honestly about whatever you want to talk about. And so that's why for such a long time, we don't hear the name Onesimus. It doesn't happen until verse 10 because... What Paul is attempting to do in addressing Philemon is lay on the significance 
of everything that Christ has already done for Philemon. Remind him of the contention that they have together as a synergist, right? Interwoven as workers and faithful stewards of God. Knowing full well that you could kill this man if he returns to you because that's within your right as a Roman citizen to do. But something wonderful has happened. You see, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and to me. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. My son, Onesimus. Paul uses sonship as a way to ramp up pathos. It's an emotional connection that he's trying to make with Philemon. You see, the thing is about uh, the art of persuasion is the art of persuasion has to connect with three things. Okay, this is true for anybody in any circumstance. Whatever you're doing, if you are trying to put together a persuasive argument, you need to appeal to three things. Ethos, logos, and pathos. Okay? Ethos means you need to establish credibility and ethics. Am I a reliable source? And am I not being hypocritical? There's no subversion to what I'm trying to do. I'm a reliable and credible, ethical person. Paul establishes that in the Exordia. A prisoner for Christ Jesus. A co-laborer with you. Pathos. I now need to appeal to your feelings and your emotions to establish what it is that I would like you to do, which is essentially all of this book, 4 to 16. And then Logos. What is the reasoning? Logos, what is the reasoning for why I am making this appeal? What is the logical reason for why you should do what it is that I want you to do? And this is... This is what Paul does so brilliantly in this book is the ethos happens right at the beginning. The logos, well, it's implied because of your faith, because of what you are already doing for all the saints. And so you have to slather on the pathos because if there's no heart connection with what you're trying to say, why would I ever be persuaded? Paul is aware that there is a significant debt. I'm writing to you with my own hand. I've got someone else describe this. This is so important and this is so significant for me to talk to you about. I'm saying to you myself, there is no other author but me. If he owes you anything, I will pay for it my very self. By the way, I'm just going to butter you up again. I've heard of how good it is to stay at Philemon's house. So if you don't mind, would you prepare for me a room? Because you apparently are the best host in town. So I'm hoping 
when I'm restored to you, which of course has been a matter of your prayer because you love me so dearly, that I might come and stay with you and enjoy all the goodness of what it is to stay with you. Sometimes you've got to give a person an ego stroke to get them across the line in the art of persuasion. You see, I could write an encyclopedia on love and you could have all the logic and evidence. Not only that, a credibility that comes with an encyclopedic tome on love. But if it does not connect with your heart so that you can feel and experience love, you're not going to be persuaded by it, right? I can make a really good case that love is really good. But if you don't feel it, not only that, if you don't know the appropriate ways in which love can be experienced at its fullest, I will never, ever be able to persuade you. And this is why ethos, pathos, and logos must come together as one unit. The whole point of this book is to have all three. We must provide a clear reason, logos, and sway a decision based on both the heart and the head. Heartfelt pleas without credibility or sound reasons aren't persuasive. Neither is a clear argument without a heart connection. We've got to have all three. So the next time that you're writing a letter to somebody to get a slave out of a death sentence, engage all three. Or perhaps for us, the desire for us to communicate the love of Jesus requires us not only to create a good case for it, but to compel the heart. It's really, really not helpful if we've just got a head knowledge that God is good. You are going to persuade nobody. No one reads encyclopedias for fun. Or maybe if you do. I don't know. But there needs to be a heart transformation. There's one thing to express that Christ is love. There's another thing to experience that in your heart. And then there's another thing to live it out. And unless you're doing all three, you can't persuade anybody. It's the same point that Paul is making. We have seen a dead man who is useless become an alive man in Christ Jesus. Not only that, he is more than a servant, but a son to me and a brother to you. And I am sending him back knowing full well that it is within your right to kill him. But because of Christ, a scandalous grace is at play, which you are already demonstrating in the same way I am demonstrating it here in chains. That even though I am a dead man, 
awaiting my sentence, I am an alive man in Christ. And even though he is an alive man here, I am sending him back to you knowing that for you he is a dead man, but because of Christ he is an alive man. That's the argument. And the argument for all of us. Very confusing. So let me make it simple. Yeah. There's a David Crowder song that Jeanette's a big fan of. She might have already mentioned it. It wasn't by anything that you did that you were made alive in Christ. You came as you are, a dead person. And Christ, through all the effort on Christ's side, made you an alive person. You did not bring anything to the equation. You came as you are, and you are now an alive person. That should lead you to be incredibly thankful. The problem is that some of us, including me, have been on this journey for a long, long time. We've been alive people in Christ for a long, long time. We get the rhythm of the room. We understand how church is played. And that could lead us to feeling entitled, like the older brother. Why aren't you fattening me, big pigs, and killing them? I've been in this house a long, long time, and therefore I should have a few rights. Yeah? And what Jesus is driving us back to the point is, I just want to celebrate the dead person who's alive again over and over and over and over again. We can all give a really good explanation for why we follow Jesus. I'm pretty sure of it. I mean, I'm surveying the room right now. Like, you can give a, I think most people in this room can give a pretty good explanation. It may not be a great reason. Like, it may be out of duty. Like, you're just so sick of hearing the argument. You're like, all right, I'm in as long as you leave me alone. Um, you know, that's like, a, that's like a reluctant faith. C.S. Lewis had a re- reluctant faith, right? And some of us might have a moment where we can point back at it and we just say we can, we can, we can remember the awe-inspiring presence of God in a moment, Right? And it might have happened years and years and years ago and that started to fade a little bit, but we can kind of point to a moment. We say, man, I I really do remember the awe-inspiring presence of God in that moment. Whatever it is, like we've we've got a a story. I think the hardest thing is, is keeping the mindset of the younger brother who wanted to come in with a really good speech 
Oh, man, I go, oh, I've been working on it. Well, I've been sleeping in pig swill. I've been thinking through it. I've got a great argument why you should welcome me back. And the scandalous grace that's coming out in that passage is the same scandalous grace that's been shown to us by Jesus. I don't want to hear your explanation. You're welcome. But we always feel like we want to do something, right? I want to do something. I want to do something. Nope. Come and have a fat pig. But some of us in the room go, hey, what's in it for me? 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 Well, it's the same gift that you got at the beginning, eternal life and salvation in Christ Jesus. It hasn't changed. Keep the heart of the younger brother who went and squandered it all and remembered what it was like to feel the scandalous grace of Jesus. It's the same thing Paul is contending for for Philemon. The only way that we can do that for people in our community is it appeal to the Logos. Is it credible what you are saying? The ethos, sorry, ethos is credibility, logos is logic. And pathos requires a heart connection. And if we do that, we can be persuasive in sharing our faith. Because we were all dead. We are now servants of Christ Jesus but we're also sons and daughters. And that's the scandalous grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, that we might be as persuasive as Paul is. That as an old man, that we might demonstrate the same love and affection and joy that we have for every new believer whose hearts and minds are completely transformed by you. Lord, that we might celebrate, that we might champion, that we might be overjoyed for every new heart that is awakened. Lord, give us wisdom on how to be persuasive. Lord, that we might live a life that brings you glory. That our head and our heart might both be transformed. And that we might speak in the same passionate way that Paul puts forward a plea for a brother who is now alive because of you. Amen.